Hello, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, a BP first, Tyler. Yes. <laughs> I, why is this? Don't act like it's such an imposition on you. The entire world is doing this. I know, but here's we the, are quarantined. We are self-isolating. You know what? I, this is not an attack on you in particular, Tyler. Here, uh, I do tend to take things that way, but um, <laughs> I know. Uh, no, you know what? How I see this? I see this as vindication. All right. You and I for 13 years have been saying uh, in person is better. And uh, there'd be people who'd say like, no, no, that's that's old fashioned way of thinking. And then I would be on other shows that uh, I would Skype in and it would be fine. But at the same time, uh, you and I have been dealing with connectivity issues, obviously emotionally is what I'm talking about. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's not a new problem. <laughs> uh, and so it's just that kind of thing where it's like outside of the power going out or the occasional ice cream truck, uh, you know, when you and I are in the same room, there aren't that many issues and, uh, I'm just, I'm just bummed. Well, by we're, I, I think we're going to do, I, I don't think we should be uh, preparing the listeners for a subpar experience. They've got enough on their hands right sure. now. We're all, we're all quarantined. We're all, uh, we'll talk more on the, on the main episode this week about what we're, uh, uh, what we're doing, uh, uh to pass the time, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> in, in isolation. But for now, let's just, uh, talk about the movies we've watched. Most of these I watched before the world began to mm-hmm. end. Um, so, uh, um, oh, all right. I will, I will, I will start. Uh, I, um, let's see. I watched 1985's come and see directed by Elem Klimov. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a Russian or it's actually a, um, Belarusian, uh, film that takes place during, world war two. And, uh, it's, I think I, I don't use this word lightly, to be honest. I think it's a masterpiece. It's, um, it's amazing to watch it now, uh, because it's recently been restored and, and played in some theaters before all the theaters closed. And, uh, criterion, uh, just announced, I think yesterday, um, that it'll be coming out on Criterion Blu-ray in in June, and it's interesting to watch it now to realize um, to to see so much of other movies, like recent movies like 1917 uh, and Son of Saul, in 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 this tale because it it has uh, a lot of the same. Um, uh, Aspiratio and framing type of thing of some son of Saul, the the main the main character who's a a, a young a, essentially a teenager um, who uh, um, finds a rifle and uh, decides to join the Soviet resistance against uh, the Nazis and it goes from being um, very like uh, this sort of nationalistic pride, like I'm going to go do the right thing and fight and it's going to be glorious to almost immediately having just being horrifically disillusioned as the war within days becomes, uh, a liver, a literal living nightmare for him. It's the number of things this guy goes through this guy, this young, this kid essentially, uh, goes through, um, 
are it's it's nonstop and it's and it's punishing and it's not an easy movie to watch but it's also um very often a very like bleakly beautiful movie the way that it's the way that it's shot i mentioned the son of saul thing i i've also seen in reading reviews uh references to um the passion of joan of arc in, in the way that it's like so much of what happens is and the emotional experience of it is is transmitted by focusing in sort of medium close up on this kid's face. He has a very expressive uh face. The 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 camera's obviously able to move a lot more than it was in uh The Passion of Joan of Arc, but um it, it's a it's really harrowing um and it terrible things start to happen right away and then keep getting worse and worse. Um and it uh uh it it, it doesn't flinch and it uh is certainly, I think, one of the most effective anti-war movies uh, I've ever seen. And then, after that, uh, I watched, couldn't be more different, I watched Tyler. Yes. I watched, I, I didn't realize this until I looked at IMDb, because I didn't, I didn't, wasn't doing this on purpose, but I went 20 years without watching a Guy Ritchie film. <laughs> Okay. I but I watched I watched The Gentleman. Right. That's and right. I realized I realized that the last Guy Ritchie film I've seen is Snatch. I've seen a total of three Guy Ritchie films: Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch. Did I say Snatched before? That's the Amy Schumer uh, Goldie Hawn movie. Oh, I assumed Snatch. it was it, it was his sequel. Snatch to is the Guy Ritchie first film. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I've seen Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch, and now The Gentleman. So I, I missed. Fan favorites like Swept Away and Rock and Rolla. Uh, I missed a uh, huge um, box office uh, um, successes like that one uh, King Arthur movie that he made. Um, I think he that made is two the, Sherlock I think Holmes that is movies. The official title, uh, like for home video release, like the way they changed Edge of Tomorrow, <laughs> sure. uh, they called that yeah. one King Arthur movie. Um, oh, I thought you meant they call it that one King Arthur movie that Guy Ritchie made. Uh, <laughs> it's in parentheses. Um, so yeah, um, I uh, I loved. I uh, saw so when I was I was probably a freshman in college when I saw Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking, Two Smoking Barrels. I probably borrowed the VHS copy from you, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, of Lock, Lock Stock, as, as we uh, fans call it not a fan. I haven't seen it in 20 years and I really liked it. And then snatch came out and I think, uh, I can't remember if I saw, I think I went and saw that in theater. I can't remember exactly. Um, and my, I think my initial, this happens sometimes with bands, right? Mm-hmm. You like a band when they're like an indie band and they like graduate to a major label. When you first hear like their new sort of more polished thing, you're like, uh, this is not as good as it was when it was the raw other thing. But then like you let the, the, you let your like, uh, uh, you know, punk rock ethos crumble yeah. a little bit and you let the years pass and you kind of realize like, Oh no, they were, they did a lot of things with that budget and that sonic, you know, adventurousness. And so snatch, I didn't like as much as Lockstock when it first came out in retrospect, I think it's better than Lockstock. Hmm. What do you think of that? Uh, Hmm. It is definitely more polished. Mm-hmm. I think I prefer the the. I think I prefer the the tone of Lockstock more uh, because the characters okay. do feel a little bit more real, as opposed to with Snatch. Uh, 
even if you just if you just look at the opening credit sequence or or whatever you'd want to call it, um, the idea that uh, these characters are essentially like archetypes or maybe even cartoons um, is something that is fun on one mm-hmm. hand, but on the other, I feel less invested. Whereas with Lockstock, I I do feel more invested in these characters, and so. Um, yeah, so I think I think I prefer Lockstock, but as far as uh, Snatch is probably a better movie. Yes. Well, um, the gentleman uh, is worse than both of them. <laughs> it's a it, it is a it is a a pale um, and and weak attempt to sort of recreate that uh, that madcap, darkly comic, uh, violent crime caper feeling with. Uh, idiosyncratic characters um and there are there are parts when it works parts when it hums and sings or whatever but uh for the most part it's um the first half is almost completely eventless it seems like which is not there are movies that are structured that way that i that i like but uh i found myself bored for most of the first half and then the um you know you don't have any characters who are actually as interesting as as Jason Statham and Snatch, or or what's the uh, the the Cockney gangster Bricktop or something Brick like top, that? Yeah, what's yeah. his name? Yeah, there's no one quite like that. It seems they're trying to be like that. And you've also got um, there's because there's um, a number of Chinese characters, mm-hmm. and there's definitely some racism there. But I also feel like that's not. It's more the characters being racist than the movie being racist. But I think okay, also that could be my white privilege like blinding me or whatever um so i wasn't as put off by that i am put off by the uh there's some i would say sometimes blatant and sometimes coded homophobia in the movie that doesn't Um, surprise me because hugh grant's character uh who's sort of the he's the investigative journalist that's kind of telling he's telling charlie hunnam uh the story is that right charlie hunnam is that the guy's name uh, uh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, he's telling him the story by which I mean, I mean, he's telling the audience the story. Um, yeah, Charlie Hunnam. And so Hugh Grant's character is supposed to be gay. And I think there's suggestions that Charlie Hunnam's character is also gay. Um, and that stuff is okay. But then there's also, uh, the dude from, uh, Jeremy strong, who's on the show succession that everyone, but you and me watches, uh, and loves, um, He's playing a character who is not who is not coded or not supposed to be gay. He's uh, apparently happy, happily married to a woman, but is so uh, like slimily effeminate in a way that is really familiar to a lot of hackneyed movie villains for mm-hmm. like basically the entire history of cinema. Uh, and I found that uh, really off-putting. And I, it just I don't know. It wasn't that funny. Um, I don't know. Colin Farrell is pretty good. I always like him. Sure. But, uh, it, it, it was kind of, a yeah, it, it, it wasn't, wasn't for me. I felt like there was something else I was going to say about it, but, um, we've got, uh, we don't have much time actually. We're probably, uh, a, a note that I'll say on air in front of the listeners. We're probably going to have to pause at a certain point, Tyler, because I, uh, uh, just found out I have a thing to do in half an hour. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'll try to, so, uh, I'll try to keep are, my, my comments short. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm definitely in full, uh, 
homesick from work mode, even though I am working. Um, and, uh, so every movie that I have here is a rewatch, although admittedly some of them I have not seen in quite a while. Uh, so there are movies that I watched with my class or whatever. Uh, but this first one is a film that you and I have both dismissed, uh, over the, over the years. Uh, but Jen and I rewatched it and I hadn't seen it for a long time and it is the Goonies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, so don't, I don't know, really I mean, have fond I, memories I, of it. I watched it a lot when I was a kid and I hadn't seen it for a while. The last time I saw it was a few years ago and I really didn't care for it. Uh, but in watching it this time, I think I was able to, I think I was able to acknowledge it for what it is, which is just like, you know, uh, there was a cartoon when I was a kid called James Bond Jr. Um, and this is essentially Indiana Jones Jr. I mean, it is uh, it is uh, produced by Steven Spielberg. And so it just feels like that. I mean, we've got we're dealing with skeletons. We're dealing with like buried treasure and care. You know, uh, we're dealing with archetypes. Even um, I forget the name of the actor, but he played short round in uh, in Temple of Doom. And then here he is in this film as well. And so, uh, it's, it's pretty clunkily written in a lot of ways, especially, uh, when the characters are getting, uh, kind of maudlin. Um, but, uh, but I think the performances are solid and as a, as an ensemble, I think it works really well. Um, I, I really respond to the, the, the chunk character, uh, specifically from a performance standpoint, (laughs) like he's, he's so scared all the time that I appreciate that. He's kind of a, a cowardly lion type. And, um, but, uh, there's a moment that Jen and I laughed out loud. Uh, you still there? Sorry. There was a thing. Yeah, okay. Uh, there was a, a moment where Jen and I laughed out loud where the, uh, the, the kids are trying to get into like the abandoned restaurant and, uh, and one of them just goes, Oh, the door's locked. At which point Chunk just goes, thank God. And I thought that was, <laughs> it was really funny. His, it's, his delivery is really solid. So, um, so I think the film actually is, it's, it's fun for the type of movie that it is. Um, but I also don't think it's that amazing of a film and, and anybody who says like, Oh my gosh, what a great movie. Undoubtedly they're dealing in nostalgia and, it's the kind of thing that you watch when you're a kid and then ideally you graduate from, uh, and, and move on. Because if I were to do, uh, elementary school math, it would not be very challenging to me anymore. Well, actually that might not be the best analogy because it probably would be, but, um, but yeah, so, uh, and then, then there is the whole issue of sloth, uh, the, the character who is deformed and all of that, or whatever you'd want to say, uh, disabled, um, and just, even though the, the film is sympathetic to him, there is just the way that he is used. It feels a little bit exploitative to me. Um, so, and maybe trying to, in their own way, maybe they're trying to make him into a Frankenstein's monster type. Um, so I definitely sympathize with him, but I just, I just don't know why he needed to be included. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so the film is kind of whatever, um, I still don't think it's that great, um, but I also, looking at it for what it is, which is almost like a, a gateway for younger kids into a, a certain type of adventure movie, I, I'm okay with that. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure that um, kids need that much of a gateway into that type of adventure movie. It's not like the Indiana Jones 
movies are like, you know, advanced calculus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So I think I've got another two to do and then we go back to one, one, one. I think, I think uh, so. That's again, so we're, do, we're doing all thing. our off mic stuff, uh, on mic because we're in different, uh, well, we're still, we're both in the same city. We're at different ends of Ventura Boulevard, I guess. Indeed. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. So then, uh, the movie, last movie I went, uh, Oh, you know what? No, I'm just going to do one. Sorry. I told you off mic that I had nine to do today, but I realized one because the release date got pushed. I am under quarantine. Oh, <laughs> quarantine embargo <laughs> is what I meant to say. I, we are all under quarantine. Indeed. Um, so I'm under embargo. So actually, so I'm just going to do one. Uh, so the last movie that I went to see in a theater before, uh, we never get to go see movies in theaters mm-hmm. again. Uh, all the theaters are going to go out of business. No, seriously, uh, do support. Um, there are, there are funds up there to, uh, people are, are fundraising to support, uh, theater workers and, and you can buy sort of memberships to your art house theaters and stuff like that and do what you can to uh, spend the money you would have been spending at theaters. Um, while you're under quarantine, it, uh, it'll help, uh, us transition back into reality at some point. Anyway, that's my, uh, little advocacy for, for today. Uh, uh, so the last movie I saw in the theater was Autumn DeWilde's Emma. Oh, okay. So I had to pause. I have to pause because there's a period at the end of Emma. I know when a movie ends in an exclamation point, which I'll have one later, uh, in the, in the movie journal, we pronounce the exclamation point. I feel like when you're talking about a movie like Emma, you have to observe a moment of silence after saying the name of the movie just to, uh, to emphasize that, that period. You're, you're, and, mourning, um, you're mourning the end of a sentence is what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, man, it's great. Emma is, it's really good. It's, um, it's the rare movie. I, I tend to avoid trailers, but, um, the trailer for Emma, I remember I saw it before little women and, um, well, it hadn't really been on my radar, which is rare. Usually I know about movies that are coming out. I didn't like it. But at the time that I saw Little Women, I didn't know that this version of Emma was coming out. The trailer was really enticing. Uh, Natalie and I like looked at each other in the theater. And, well, we have, I, I'm sure lots of couples do this sort of thing. But whenever Natalie and I go to the movies, after every trailer, we give each other a thumbs up, thumbs down, or we actually have like sort of five degrees. There's like thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways. And then there's a, you know, North by Northwest or South by Southwest type of, uh, thumb thing. Um, but we both, uh, as soon as the trailer for Emma played, we both gave each other enthusiastic thumbs up that, uh, I don't know if you've seen the trailer for Emma, uh, Tyler. I have not. Um, and I'll say, so the movie, it, the trailer is very funny and the movie starts in a way that is very funny. The opening couple of scenes, um, are hilarious. Uh, Bill Nye, um, as, uh, as Emma's father is, is very funny. And, um, I'm looking up the actor, uh, who plays, um, Elton, the, um, uh, Josh O'Connor is his name. He plays Elton, the, um, Oh man, now I'm drawing a blank on who played Elton in Clueless. Uh, do you remember? I do not. You've seen it more recently than I do, than I have. Oh, Jeremy Sisto played Elton. That's so, right. Yes. Elton. So Clu- Clueless is a modern or a modern at the time. Now it's 25 years old, but was a modern at the time uh, update of of Emma. 
Um, and it, the only version of Emma that I'm actually familiar with. So I kept sort of mapping all the characters. Um, anyway, so that the opening couple of sequences are very funny. And then it kind of settles into a more naturalistic, uh, tone and pace, but a, a very humanistic one I'm very much in, in a way it's a different style. It's a more sort of candy colored style than little women, but both movies do a great job of not feeling like, those sort of hermetically sealed period pieces, you know, um, which there's a place for those, you know, sometimes they, they work and sometimes they don't, but, um, it, it, it makes the sort of Regency period feel alive and, uh, relatable and immediate. Um, and, but so I was a little bit like, Oh, is, is this movie not going to be funny going forward? And I was wrong. It does get funny again uh, from time to time, but it actually kind of builds, uh, more emotion uh, as it goes on after, after that, um, and you've got a great uh, lead performance as as Emma by Anya Taylor Joy, who uh, is a, an actress that I uh, now think very highly of. I've seen her in enough things to to be looking forward to to all of her roles. You've also got uh, Mia Goth, um, who I think is kind of an up and coming actress, I guess, and she's very funny. She's in the Brittany Murphy role, uh, okay, <laughs> if you will. Uh, <laughs> And uh, yeah, I, the movie's very emotional. The performances, uh, especially by yeah, I mentioned Anya Taylor Joy, Mia Goth, Bill Nighy. I will also and Josh O'Connor. I also call out uh, um, Callum Turner uh, is in it, and then the actress um, and I am forgetting her name. Everyone loves her. She's in all kinds of things, but uh, oh well, I can't find her name. Oh well. She was on like call the midwife. What the hell is her name? Anyway, uh, performance is very good. Let's move on. Sorry. Did you throw, did you throw it to me? I couldn't hear. Yeah, I threw it to you. I'm sorry. It's, uh, the, uh, the connection, uh, went out and I was, that was my deepest fear, uh, is that just as you were asking me a question or throwing to me, I, w- uh, everything would be, uh, frozen. So, uh, the next, uh, the next film for me is a film that I watched in one of my classes and it is West Side Story, which is a movie I have not seen in quite a while. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, the thing that I want to comment on is less the film itself, which is good as we both know. Um, it's more the way that my students reacted to it. Um, they, they seem to like the film for the most part. Uh, but one thing that was interesting is I forgot to prepare them for say the overture and I forgot to prepare them for an intermission and Hmm. So the overture for West Side Story is just a, a, a screen that's like a solid color with some very strange abstract lines on it. Uh, and then the music plays and the color shifts from red to indigo to blue. And then it just goes around like that. And the lines stay in one place as the overture plays. And it's about, you know, three, four minutes long. And then... Uh, the city of New York fades in. You realize that those lines are essentially skyscrapers. And as I was watching that, I was like, I wonder if my students know what this is as a concept, the overture. 
uh, and then the intermission comes along, but it doesn't say intermission. The screen just goes black and music plays. And so I, uh, I was in the, essentially the projection booth office thing. And so when the intermission happened, uh, and nobody was moving, um, not that they have to, but, uh, I ducked my head out and I said, Hey, by the way, this is an intermission. So if you need to use the bathroom, you can. And so they, they went and, um, so afterwards, uh, there was a guy who, and I don't necessarily blame him if you don't know what an overture is, uh, and nobody has explained it to you and the movies that you see don't have them, uh, then it's a very strange idea. And so, uh, when I was asking the students like what they thought of it, uh, one guy was like, he goes, yeah, this was, he goes, that was so weird. And it just seemed He's like, and it was really boring and I just didn't understand why they did it. And so then I had to explain what an overture was and all of that. And so it really, and this is not a situation of me like complaining about, uh, younger students or anything like that. It is just an instance where like, yeah, I guess there, anytime you're watching an older film, whether it be musical or otherwise, there will come a moment when you realize, uh, when you come upon something that is very foreign to you, um, and so, uh, you know, like when I, when I showed double indemnity to my students and they talk about like how quickly the characters quote unquote fall in love, or at least how quickly they declare their love. And so I had to describe, explain some of the themes of, of, uh, film noir and all that. So, uh, the film itself, I really respond to, and I like it's, it's blend of realism and artificiality, uh, you know, shooting in the streets of New York, but then also shooting up on a rooftop with like very, uh, clearly defined colors and all that. And so the, the mixture of these two things really gives the film a a vibrance that I really appreciate. And once again, I say it a lot, but, uh, Robert Wise is a, is an undervalued talent, despite him winning two Oscars, uh, and directing some of the best movies ever. Uh, he's just not someone we talk about enough, but he is a, he was a reliable uh, journeyman director and you could always depend on him to deliver a pretty solid movie for the most part. So that's, that's it for uh, West side story. Well, um, <laughs> having almost nothing in common with West side story, I watched the 1981 can <laughs> gore fest, my bloody Valentine. Oh yes. Yes. And have you seen this? I have, it's been many years, but I saw it. Yes. Oh, it's so much fun. So you, I don't know uh, the release history, so I don't know if you saw, because I watched this new Scream Factory Blu-ray that includes the uncut version. Oh, I only um, saw the... the or the yeah, relatively well. uncut version. Um, okay, so you uh, you missed about three minutes of uh, really graphic gore mm-hmm. uh, throughout the movie. Um, and, uh, I, you know, sometimes... You know, you and I, have, you and I have talked about becoming more sensitive to that sort of thing uh, as as we get older. But sometimes you just get the tone right, <laughs> and my bloody Valentine uh, is so uh, so perfectly calibrated in in terms of being the. It, it, I would say, if my bloody Valentine, if if you are not the kind of person who likes a slasher movie, you won't like this. This isn't going to be like the, you know, crossover hit. Like this is for people who like slasher movies. And if you do, um, this one's very, uh, very specific and very well executed. Uh, it has, uh, it takes place in a small, like Nova Scotia town. Everyone has, it's like, you know, it's, it's like black Christmas is another, uh, one of my all time favorite horror movies. It was also a Canadian movie, but I feel like they kind of, 
went to lengths to make it seem like this could be like a new England college town or whatever. Like, (laughs) um, uh, what? Okay. Um, sorry. Um, but this one, they go to, in this case, the accents are so thick (laughs) um, that that there's no hiding the fact that this is a a Canadian movie and that's delightful. It's, uh, and and you've got people in the sort of, you know, Canadian tuxedo, you know, the all Mm -hmm. denim thing. Uh, and the premise of the movie is that it's 1980 ish or whatever, 81. And back in 1961 on Valentine's day, just outside a town called Valentine bluffs, there was a collapse, a cave in at the mine and a bunch of people died. One man survived, but by the time he was finally dug out, he had gone insane and he got out and slaughtered a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so since then they, the town has canceled their annual Valentine's day celebrations, uh, out of respect. But now it's been 20 years. People are starting to move on and the young, you know, the young crowd, the young miners, uh, uh, they want to have a, they want to have a party again. And, uh, they decide to have a party and, uh, guess what? People start getting killed again. Um, real graphically with a pick at pickaxe most of the time, but sometimes some other, uh, mining related, uh, deaths ha- happen. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun if you like the, that sort of movie. And also I think this is something that I think of like, now that I'm probably not quite 20 years older, but I'm 15 years old, older probably than the most of the main characters in the movie, maybe more, maybe 17 years, it's supposed to be like in the twenties, 16, 17 years older. Um, and I realize that to them, this thing that happened in their town 20 years ago is like part of the history books. It's ancient history, right? But to the town, the older people in the town, the the memory is probably still fresh. You know, I remember 2000 now better than I would have remembered, say 83 in 2003. Sure. I don't have any real memories in 1983 because uh, I was only a, a baby at the time. Um, and I, I don't know if the movie like is set out to be a sort of like, comment on generational memory or whatever, but, uh, it was interesting from that point of view, but also it has, you know, people getting stabbed through the eyes with pickaxes and stuff. So it's cool. Sure. All right. You're up. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, next for me is another rewatch, but in this case, it's been a very, very long time since I saw it. And that is Nicholas Ray's rebel without a cause. Um, and I watched, I watched it twice, uh, in the last week because I teach two sections of, uh, American film history. And, uh, you know, I, this is a film that I, I think I've gone back and forth on when I saw it in high school, I really loved it. And then I think I saw it in college again and thought it was really melodramatic and it just seemed like really over the top and all that emotionally, uh, watching it again, you know, this is, this is something you and I've talked about is that the concept of melodrama is something that, you know, the term melodramatic is seen as a negative criticism of something. Um, whereas if a film is unabashed about, well, no, this is what we're doing. Like the emotions are, the characters wear their emotions on their sleeves and the, there's a a certain histrionic quality to it. Um, 
that that it that you can't you know you can't say like oh that horror movie was gory you know that doesn't it's just like yeah if it's a gory movie then that's not something that is a, a legit criticism um and that's how this watching it now and having a deeper appreciation for what films of that time could be and what many of them were you know desiring to be uh, i came to really appreciate the film um First off, it's it's gorgeous. It's uh, the the use of color is great. Uh, the framing is is solid. A really nice use of uh, a, a re- at that time a relatively new aspect ratio, um, and then the performances. Uh, that's what most people talk about, and understandably so. Um, James Dean, you know, we think of the moments of you're tearing me apart, uh, which is a, a big moment, but it's also you know, when you think about the way that you felt as a teenager, probably the reason that this appealed to me as a teenager is because it felt very right to me. Uh, you know, your emotions are, are all over the place and they seem very big. Um, and then you get older and you look down on yourself for, for letting your emotions control you like that. Uh, but now I can look at it and re- and realize that like, yeah, this is, there's, there's a film that was really trying to, um, really trying to capture that feeling uh, of being a teenager at the time. But then there are also a lot of nice smaller moments uh, from James Dean that I really appreciated. And, uh, and Sal Mineo also, I think uh, an actor who I have limited exposure to um, as the character Plato, they do a really great job of he's, he's a character that's very endearing. You're really on board with him, but you also uh, see the ways in which he is, wounded and even a little bit broken the, the the way that the way that he reacts to James Dean you know on one hand you could say that there's maybe a level of attraction there but it's i think it's even deeper than that because he clearly is just looking for any kind of father figure in a way that maybe even is is a little bit too obvious um but uh he he really is just like this this puppy that has been hurt and you really feel for him, but you also realize like, oh, he's got, there's, at times he makes me uncomfortable because of the way he's trying to uh, fit his relationships into a very specific mold. And uh, yeah, I was very glad that I watched it. And then I was glad I watched it again because like that sort of solidified for me what I think of it at the moment. And who knows, maybe in 10, 15 years when I watch it again, I won't like it, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think, uh, I think I have an, enough of appreciation for the idea of melodrama and what it can accomplish that, uh, that I think I'm, I'm going to uh, continue to really, I would say, love this movie. All right. I, uh, next up for me is a rare, uh, rewatch. Uh, not that I rewatch movies rarely, but I rarely, uh, bother to talk about them on the, sure. on the movie journal when I rewatch them. Um, cause like I also rewatched Calvary for the dozen, a half dozen time, uh, uh, on, on St. Patrick's day as my, in my tradition. I don't need to talk about Calvary again, but I, I watched the movie because Criterion put out the, uh, put it out on Blu-ray. It's a, it's a, an existing Criterion title that they, um, uh, upgraded to Blu-ray, and that's uh, uh, I had the guy's name Hiroshi Teshigahara's Antonio Gaudi, which okay. is a, I guess the misleading way to describe it would to say would be to say that it's a documentary about architect Antonio Gaudi, but um, 
I remember when I've, I I've, have such vivid memories when I first watched this movie. I can even tell you it was September of 2005 when I'd first moved to Los Angeles and I'd rented it. <clears throat> and um, I knew that it was something special. I just didn't know what to make of it at the time because uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the movie, um, Tyler, but uh, it's, it, it's based, there's almost no dialogue not or, or any voices or, or words in it at all. It's mm. basically just an hour and 15 minutes of shots of Antonio Gaudi's architecture, um, along with some sort of like kind of otherworldly kind of ominous, uh, music, um, going on. And, um, and then toward the end, you do get a couple of very brief snippets of interviews with other architects who knew, um, uh, who, who, who maybe know his work or, or, um, or whatever, but even that's not, it's not that insightful. Um, it's mostly just about looking, just looking at architecture kind of in a way, kind of the way you would look, if you went to an art museum, you would just look at the art, mm-hmm. you know? Um, it's not about the life story of Antonio Gaudi. You don't learn anything about him. Um, you kind of have to put it together in your head that like, okay, that's the name of the architect that whose buildings we're looking at. Um, but, um, it also, but, but something that I don't think I, um, 15 years ago could, uh, would have been able to articulate is the way that it recontextualizes the art simply by being art itself. So this isn't me looking at Antonio Gaudi's architecture. Mm-hmm. It's in a way it's me looking at Hiroshi Tashigahara looking at Antonio Gaudi's architecture. And it becomes, um, it becomes a story that he's telling because, you know, maybe if I'm standing in front of a painting, if you and I are both standing in front of the same painting, Tyler, you might be looking at it from a different angle and be done looking at it before I am and move on to something else or vice versa. You know, here I'm being dictated to how I watch the, how I look at this art is being dictated to me by the director. And so it becomes fourth dimensional. It becomes a story in itself. Um, and, uh, a lot of his, his, his use of wide angle lenses, uh, obviously, helps make Antonio Gaudi's already kind of weird and alien looking architecture. Cause he doesn't use any, um, like straight lines or right angles at mm-hmm. all. Um, so it already looks a little weird to begin with. And then you've got these very sort of like, uh, I, I can't think of any other filmmaker as much as Terry Gilliam, these Terry Gilliam type of ways of looking at it, where you've got a wide angle lens that'll be like, uh, like there'll be a shot that's looking up at a sort of, I don't know what some big room from the inside and the camera is a wide angle lens that is dollying back and tilting to the right at the same time. And it's like weirdly disorienting. Um, and it, uh, it obviously influences how you think about, uh, the art, uh, that you're, that you're looking at, um, and it's just a beautiful experience. And like I said, it's only like an hour and 15 minutes long. All right. So my next film is uh, Nerve. Once again, this is a, a rewatch. I don't mean to give the impression that I've only been rewatching movies. Uh, yeah. Some of the movies that I've been watching are for our profile. Uh, so I don't want to talk about them here because we'll be talking about them next week. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, directed by Henry Jusen, uh, Ariel Schulman, uh, Nerve from 2016. Did you see Nerve? I did not, no. Okay. Uh, I love it so much. It is, this is what I said at the time, it, it is so much better than it has any right to be. Um, and it's it stars Emma Roberts and Dave Franco. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where... Yes, it could be seen as sort of this uh, like technological panic where it's like, oh, there's this new uh, website where people can watch and dare other people to do these things. Um, And uh, it suggests that uh, that like the watchers are are callous and all that sort of thing. Um, It is based on like a young adult novel and it has that feel to it, certainly. But the way that it's edited and the way that it looks like it just has this really uh this really beautiful neon quality to it and it's it is sincere which doesn't necessarily make a movie good but with something like this there could be a a distancing uh from the directors who kind of are winking at you and have sort of an ironic detachment but that's not the case here uh it is the the characters and the writing and the filmmaking they're all in and they seem to really be excited about the film that they're making. And yeah, I just, uh, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I was really happy to watch it again. Um, it is, uh, probably like one of my, I mean, I don't know if I'd say one of my favorites. It wasn't like in my top 10 that year, but it's definitely a film that, uh, surprised me, uh, probably more, maybe more than any other film I can think of, of the last like five years. Um, so yeah, nerve Hmm. from 2016, I think people would enjoy it again. It's based on a, on a YA novel and it does have that sensibility, but if you can just accept that, uh, then I think you can let yourself enjoy it quite a bit. All right. Uh, I watched, speaking of watching things for, for research, I, um, still have this ongoing column, uh, over at film independent until they decide to stop letting me do it in which I, um, write about the filmmakers who have won the someone to watch award. So I watched, I'll start with, I watched H from 2014. This is, I should have paused there because this like Emma H has a period after it. It's the initial H. Sure. Um, it is, uh, and this is the movie that won, uh, it's directors, uh, Renea Atea and Daniel Garcia, Renea Atea and Daniel Garcia, uh, won them the someone to watch award. The H with the period at the end there stands for Helen. The movie is about two Helens. It is two different stories, uh, that both take place in the town of Troy, New York. So these are Helens of Troy. Um, I'm not sure what uh, exactly the story has to do with the ancient Greek (laughs) myth. Uh, but, um, uh, I'm sure I'm missing out on some, on some connection. It's actually kind of, it starts as kind of a, domestic drama you see this um sort of uh older like retired couple and the um woman whose name is helen uh she's played by hold on i have to look up her name you're you're good with character actors so you might actually recognize this name i had to look up what do i know her robin bartlett name sounds familiar. Um, she is in uh Inside Lewin Davis, she's the uh, woman whose cat uh, he loses and brings back the wrong cat. Oh yes, oh she's yeah and, she's been in a bunch of stuff. She's a she's yeah. great. And what does she yell about? Like the cat's like vagina or something? <laughs> something so, about 
like, well, where is this, Lewin? Where, like, where is its vagina something or something? like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's Robin Bartlett stars as Helen. She's a, a, she and her husband live together, and she's got this um, uh, hobby, I guess, that's kind of uh, disturbing. She's uh, She has an incredibly realistic baby, like, infant rubber doll that she cares for and feeds quote unquote and takes care of. And she has meetings both online and in person with other women who share this same hobby. And they talk about their babies as if they're real babies. Mm. Um, and it's what she I don't know, does to pass the time with her, not especially, uh, you know, uh, fruitful marriage. Meanwhile, also in Troy, there's a young couple, uh, Rebecca Diane, who, uh, plays the other Helen, who, um, who is married to an actor, uh, to a character played by actor Will Janowitz, uh, whom I know as Finn from yeah. Sopranos. Yeah. Um, and uh, they are an artist couple who work together, which is apparently what uh, is also true of Ronnie Atea and Diana Garcia, the directors of the movie. Um, but their marriage is also unhappy because she is four months pregnant with their child, and yet they are piercing or piecing their marriage back together after he had an affair. So it's basically two unhappy married couples, unhappy women named Helen in marriages and at sort of the other opposite ends of a marriage. So what I'm describing to you now is a domestic drama. Uh, this is also a science fiction movie because what ends up happening is some sort of strange, I don't know, meteorite or flash from the sky. Something comes down and lands outside of Troy uh, and, a bunch of people find themselves inexplicably drawn to Lake George where the thing landed, where all these people walk out to the lake and then in perfect formation outside the, around the edge of the lake, lay down and fall into comas. Um, and, uh, so the, the story goes back and forth with, uh, older Helen's husband being one of those people who is, uh, fallen into a coma outside of the lake. And we realize as the story goes on, younger Helen, we're leading up to, she's going to be one of the ones who goes out there, uh, to the lake as well. So it's, um, uh, a strange movie. I've spent longer talking about the plot than I usually spend on, um, uh, on, on the movie journals. Um, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. It's really, it really handles its mix of, uh, genres and tones very well. Um, because it feels like, like I mentioned, domestic drama and science fiction, it also often feels like a horror movie because you don't understand what's happening. Inexplicable things are going on. There's, you know, the night, there's a really beautiful image where, uh, the night that the meteor hits, um, uh, younger, the younger couple are leaving a restaurant after dinner and, uh, inexplicably a wild horse just runs through the center of town. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, presumably it was scared off by the media or something. We don't know. It's never explained. And there's lots of these type of unexplained things going on. It's a, a really, really cool movie. Um, comes in at a trim 90 minutes. Definitely worth watching. Okay. Uh, so here comes a, another rewatch. And it actually, it's a film I'd seen many times uh, and haven't watched it in a while. Uh, and it is Wes Anderson's Rushmore. Uh Jen, so Jen's cousin, who is uh, 22, 23, I don't remember, uh, he was visiting us. And so he was interested in 
watching some movies that he hadn't seen before that he's who we watched nerve with. Um, and then, uh, I gave him a number of options from my uh, Blu-ray collection and we wound up watching Rushmore, which I haven't seen in many years. And I know you're not a big fan of, uh, in watching it again, I really, really like it. I mean, I liked it already, but, um, but I think it might, uh, it might be my favorite Wes Anderson. Now it's either that or Royal Tenenbaums with fantastic Mr. Fox right in the mix there. But, um, but I do think that, you know, uh, y- you see a lot of the, the Wes Anderson hallmarks, but without him going fully into them, uh, we still, everything is still stylized without seeming fully artificial. Um, and I do think that, you know, when Wes Anderson is at his best, you have characters that are speaking in that very specific way that he, that he writes, um, but you get the impression that they're speaking that way as as a as a coping mechanism or as a way of distancing themselves from other people and keeping themselves emotionally uh, safe. And you get that more in this movie, especially with the Max Fisher character, who uh, I remember, I, I think I've said this before, but uh, I saw the film in the theater with my dad. So I was you know, 16 at the time. And as we were driving home, he goes, you know, that character reminds me of you. And my first thought was like, Oh, (laughs) uh, that's probably not great. And he just goes, (laughs) you know, and that's the thing is because the character is an, he's kind of an asshole and self-righteous, but in the way that I think a lot of high schoolers, especially ones that are, they are, um, they're literally intelligent, but their emotions haven't caught up to that yet. Um, and I, so in that way, I think my dad was more right than he knew because that was definitely me. Um, not to say that I'm a very smart person, but that, uh, that I was interested in slightly more adult things than a lot of my, uh, my peers. Um, but I still, and for some, and because of that, I think I thought that I was more emotionally mature than I actually was. And so, uh, we have that with this, with this film. And I think it's a really great unselfconscious performance by, uh, Jason Schwartzman. And, uh, yeah, I would, I know that you're not a, a big Wes Anderson guy and frankly, I haven't been for a, a while, but, uh, I'd say watch this one again, because, you know, when you see stuff like, uh, Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel, like where he's just gone fully into this world of, of theatricality and artificiality. I think, I think you would probably have an appreciation for Rushmore and you actually see, uh, the restraint that he shows and that he still is a little bit, he's still kind of anchored to reality and not that realism is itself a good thing, but, um, but he's, he's anchored more to like realistic, identifiable human emotion than he is in some of those other films. And so, um, yeah, I, I really liked it and I was very happy that I rewatched it. All right. Uh, and then I finished my, uh, the other half of my Rani Atea and Danny Garcia's, uh, my double feature was their film from last year called initials SG. Uh, and this, you would not, if you had the two movies described to you, you would never believe <laughs> they were from the same filmmakers that the, you know, the previous one I mentioned this sci-fi uh, weird or domestic drama thing. Uh, Initials SG is an Argentinian dark comedy mm-hmm. about an aging um, porn star um, <laughs> who uh, is depressed and has a 
pretty passionless affair with an American uh, uh, film producer, film distributor who comes into Buenos Aires um, uh, on work. And she's played by Julianne Nicholson, an actress that I always, uh, always like. I'm always glad to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the star is uh, Diego Peretti is his name. Um, and uh, his character's name is uh, Sergio Garces, initials SG. And initials SG is, so he was, a porn star at some point, a well-known porn star. He tried to transition into other modes of entertainment, including recording an album of Serge Gainsbourg covers. And the name of the album was initials SG because they both had the same initials. Um, but, uh, here you get this kind of absurd, uh, it really plays up the, and you see this in other movies and TV series that are about acting the, the, the fact that it's like a, it's an everyday uh, movie, but occasionally there'll be just outlandish, like the movie with him playing like uh, uh, a 19th century, like wounded soldier, but he's like on a, it's downtime on the set. So he's just sitting around with people who are dressed in like hoodies and shit. And he's like this bloody mustachioed, like uh soldier. There's a, there's a lot of like, uh, you know, playing into the kind of absurdism of, of his of his life of his sort of like gig uh gig to gig uh living um it's a very depressing life that he lives but he doesn't show that he still goes out and parties every night and and kind of uh hangs out uh to the fringes of um of the 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 sort of film uh the the film industry in in buenos aires and julian nicholson's character is also just a very sad person she's we come to realize that she's embarks in this affair with Sergio, not because she's particularly into him, but basically she's trying to kickstart herself into um, telling her husband she wants a divorce. And so she kind of feels like basically she's saying, well, if I have an affair, that'll kind of like get me off the couch and make me have to ask my husband for a divorce. So it's like, Neither of them is very happy uh, about this. The movie is, like I said, is very darkly funny. Uh, it goes to even darker places. I don't want to uh, uh, give away, but they end up, you know, having to spend more time together than they would. And anyway, the would initially the first two, the 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 couple. Um, uh, but uh, it also, but it does have some certain things in common. There are really specific things, like the fact that it has initials in the title, just right. like the, just like H did. Um, it does have a little bit, not to the extent of H, but there actually is some horror type of element to it. It ends up being kind of, I keep saying darkly comic. It, it ends up the, the payoff to the horror part. I won't give away, but it is kind of uh, funny. Um, it has a shot of characters inexplicably staring at the clouds. That's like one thing that's in both movies. Um, it's, it's a weird place for them to go, but I, and I don't think it's quite as successful as, as H. I think whenever you're doing something that is about a character who's this much, who's, uh, whose life seems like a caricature, Sure. You know, you, yeah. you, you risk kind of steering into things being a little forced or being a little arch. So it's, it, it didn't hit home, I think for me as well as H. Um, but, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of good stuff in it. And the Diego Peretti, I don't know him. I don't know, uh, that actor, but he's, he's really good. And like I mentioned, Julianne Nicholson, you know who Julianne Nicholson is, right? Yeah. 
uh, yeah, she's, she's great. Uh, as always. And I'm wondering because last year she was in monos. Did you see monos? No. Um, she's, I, I don't know if she's carving out this, uh, like Latin America's favorite American woman. Like, <laughs> you know, she was in the Colombian, uh, movie monos and the Argentinian movie initials SG. Maybe she's just like, speaks good enough Spanish, uh, that she, that, uh, she just gets cast in these movies. I don't know. I imagine that does make uh, a difference, uh, where it's just like, Oh good. We have, we've got a, a white actress that we can actually deal with. That's fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So, so you should have two more. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So next up for me, and you're doing is, one now. Okay. Uh, is uh, Ramon Menendez's uh, stand and deliver, which is a film I, I saw many years ago. Um, I LDP, right? What was that? Lou diamond Phillips. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I should have I call him LDP. Yeah, I know. And, uh, and EJO as well, um, is in it. Um, Oh, cool. As the, as the lead character. Um, yeah, uh, it's, so I watched it in my, in my crossing cultures class. I say, I say that as though I'm not the one that picked it. Um, so we're in the, the section of class where we're talking about Latino representation on screen. Um, and, uh, so we're getting into like the eighties and the nineties and not unlike, uh, not unlike African-American representation. There's a lot of emphasis on the inner city, a lot of emphasis on, criminality and all that. Uh, and so one of the reasons that I picked this film is because it engages with that while, while also it engages with that stereotype and the reality while also, uh, choosing to look through that. Um, and the fact that it's directed by a Latino director, I think is, is helpful as well. Um, have you seen the film? I never have. No. Okay. Um, in many ways, it's it's the standard, you know, teacher comes to a tough school and inspires the kids to think better of themselves and that kind of thing. It's it's really not breaking any new ground there. Um, but I do think that the the way the characters are written, the way they're played feels more genuine to me. And then Edward James Olmos, uh, who was nominated for Best Actor that year for the film, uh, he plays the teacher and it's a very idiosyncratic performance. And it's the kind of thing where, uh, he's inspiring without thinking he's inspiring. He's just like, okay, I'm going to do whatever I can to like reach, uh, these kids. Um, and incidentally there's a, uh, the character has been parodied on South park where, uh, Cartman dresses like him and even has like this bad comb over. And he just keeps saying stuff in a, in an, ex, uh, an exaggerated accent goes like, how do I reach these kids? Um, and when you see that and then you watch the movie, you're like, Oh boy. Uh, okay. Mm. Well, it's, it, it's the kind of thing where the parody kind of undercuts the, the, the real drama. Um, but that's only at first. And then after a while you come to really appreciate the performance. And what I like is that the character isn't always right. Like he has, he's not necessarily a tough love kind of guy, but he's very sarcastic and very dry. And there are times when, uh, you know, where he, I think he misjudges the the situation that some of the kids are in. Like he puts so much down to them thinking let not thinking well enough of themselves and demanding very little of themselves that he, when they actually do have a legit excuse as to why they can't do this or can't do that, uh, 
he just kind of goes into his usual mode and makes a joke about it. And then they have to say like, uh, no, you're wrong. And they explain what's going on. And so I do feel like, you know, it's always so easy to make this character in this type of character infallible. Uh, but no, they, the, the film makes him, uh, allows him to be wrong from time to time and actually stands up for the kids themselves. Um, and I think that's a very intelligent choice because I think a lot of films would say, would take this from the adult's perspective and say, yeah, these kids just don't understand what hard work means and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, but no, it actually allows the kids to have some agency as well and suggest that, yeah, sometimes the adult just does not understand what they're going through. So, uh, it's a pretty good movie. Again, if you, you watch it and it's not going to be, it's not going to throw you any curveballs. It's, Story-wise, it unfolds the way you expect it to, but it it is, in my opinion, it's much, much better than uh, Dead Poets Society, which came out the next year, um, partially because I think it, it, it has one foot in reality, and it is willing to let the main character be human, which is to say fallible. I- and, how uh, does it compare? How does it compare to Dangerous Minds or Freedom Riders? Uh, I've not seen either one of those, but and did I just program our next commentary marathon? <laughs> May, uh, yeah, maybe. Um, I do think that having I've not seen Freedom Riders or Dead uh, not Dead Poets Society, um, Dangerous Minds. Um, but the fact that you have in this, you have or a, to serve with love. Oh yeah, I didn't see that one either, um, but that one actually interests me because the concept of the of the white savior uh, is something that you'll find in movies like this. Oh um, sure, yeah. And so with this, you that's not the situation. Like almost all of the the characters are are uh, Latino, or I guess in the description it says uh, Hispanic. I never quite know which uh, which term to to use, but um, and so this is a guy who can speak their language in some cases, literally there are characters, there are students in the class that don't speak English. And so he's able to speak Spanish to them. And, and so I think the fact that he comes from their background, uh, sort of ingratiates himself to them, uh, ingratiates him to them. And, uh, and it doesn't look quite so condescending or, or patronizing. And, uh, so it's, it's a, it's a good movie. It's just not, uh, uh, it's just not particularly novel, but that's okay. Okay. I have a number of things that I've been, uh, looking at on my phone. Okay. <laughs> um, first off, I love Lou Diamond Phillips and I'm realizing I haven't seen him anything in anything since 2003's Hollywood homicide, but the dude works regularly. Oh uh, yes. I just yes. Don't. I, I looked him up as, as the film was playing. Yes. Uh, and so you, you also saw then that he, um, has voiced X-Men Forge in multiple X-Men video games. Yeah. That's very cool. Well, because uh, what's interesting is that um, the character of Forge is uh, Native American, or at least has some Native American ancestry, as does Lou, uh, Lou Diamond Phillips. And so I feel right. like from a casting standpoint, like, uh, good for them. Um, and then, <laughs> do you remember, this is something that happened off mic months ago. You and I were texting about something. You, I can't remember where you were, but you guys were like, on vacation, you had some sort of problem with like bats and where you were staying. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I don't and remember the situation, but yes, it's something about bats. And I just texted you, who are you? Lou Diamond Phillips. And then the 
one sheet to the 1999 Lou Diamond Phillips Shannon Doherty uh, horror film Bats. Yes. And then never heard back from you. And the le- next time I saw you, I was like, so you didn't like my Lou Diamond Phillips joke? And you were like, no, I was laughing too hard to respond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <And> then, <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, and then getting away from Lou Diamond Phillips, I was looking, I was trying to think of other movies like with uh, the, you know, the, the savior teacher. And I was reminded of, this is a very different, uh, probably very problematic movie in retrospect. 1987 is the principal with Jim Belushi. Did you ever see that? I did see it. Yes. Um, okay. Oh, Let me read you. Then there's also lean oh. on me, which I guess is, uh, that's a principal, oh, right. not a teacher, but the same basic idea. Yeah. Same as, well, the, but the principal is like a violent, like, but anyway, yeah. let me read you the opening, just the opening paragraph. Oh boy. Um, from the Wikipedia entry on the principal, which ends with a bit of trivia that I did not know. Oh, fun. Okay. The principal is a 1987 crime thriller action film starring Jim Belushi, Louis Gossett Jr. And Ray Don Chong. It was written by Frank Deese and directed by Christopher Kane. It was filmed in Oakland, California and distributed by TriStar, TriStar pictures on Panavision. Belushi reprised his role as Rick Latimer in the 1990 film, Abraxas guardian of the universe. <laughs> so jim belushi's savior like hard-ass principal character appeared in in the 1990 jesse ventura starring science fiction movie abraxas guardian of the universe now this is okay now this is uh this is wikipedia people can say silly things on there well no okay i'm looking up abraxas on imdb jim belushi Principal Latimer, he's right there uh, in the cast. Uh, so, boy, that's wow. weird. That's a weird thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, like that's like one of those things. Like whenever someone plays two roles that are like somewhat similar, people like make that joke. Like, oh, it's like a shared universe, and like they're right. playing the same. But this seems like that's actually like. I feel like they maybe cast Jim Belushi as a principal in a Braxis Guardian Universe and then said, wouldn't it be funny if his name was Principal Latimer? Oh, yes. Right? I, I have no idea. I have no doubt that, that that's the situation. Right. Um, all right. So uh, my last film of this um uh, of this movie journal. Um, I said, I, I, I teased it before, uh, that there'd be a movie with an exclamation point in the title. I watched 1949's whiskey galore, um, <laughs> which is, uh, a delightful Ealing comedy. I've been ra- watching some of the, like I mentioned, um, passport to Pimlico, I think on the last movie journal, maybe mm-hmm. two journals ago, I've been watching some of these, um, because they've been coming out on Blu-ray, uh, from film movement. Um, the, these, uh, these Ealing comedies that are sort of, I guess like the, when you think of Ealing comedies, you think of kind hearts and cornets, lady killers, lavender hill mob, man in the white suit. Are those kind of like them? Yeah. And the I, first ones you think of partially because those are the ones that like, they were all released. There was like a, they're all released sort of together because it was Alec Guinness and, uh, oh, right, on right, DVD right. like 15 years ago. And so I do tend right, to think right. of those all together. Yes. But they didn't just make movies with Guinness, it turns Correct, out. Um, yes. They also made uh, Whiskey Galore. I can only, t- like, you and I have talked before about the sort of uh, British village comedies, mm-hmm. you know, like an entire village band oh, yeah. together, whatever. That's what. That's exactly what Whiskey Glory is. It takes place. It came out in 1949, but it takes place in the middle in 1943 during World War II, and um, this 
island uh you know there are a lot of skylish scottish island villages this island of tade um they suddenly find themselves without whiskey there's no whiskey in the entire town okay um but then a cargo ship passing by during a storm or whatever runs aground and they find out there are like thousands of cases of whiskey on board the cargo ship so basically the a bunch of people from the town go out and steal the whiskey and then like the local sort of like um uh i I guess the he's the head of the home guard i'm not sure what that translates to in like modern american times but uh, uh he's essentially like a cop um he's say you know he's trying to he, he's like i know they stole this whiskey and it's not theirs to have it belongs to the ship or whatever and so it's just a whole movie of the townspeople finding crafty ways to hide whiskey from the home guard oh that sounds delightful uh, it, it really it really is delightful it's there's like, a great it's like hogan's heroes <laughs> yeah um there's a great uh i'll just give you one uh brief thing there's a uh, a joke where um uh this one guy knows that the home guard's coming to search his home. So he takes all the bottles of whiskey he has out to like the side of the dunes where there are these little sort of like divots in the, in the, uh, in, in the grass or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's going to hide them in there. But every time he tries to put a bottle in there, you hear clink. Cause someone else is already using the hiding space. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of fun stuff. Uh, fun stuff like that. Um, yeah, there's a uh, there's another one where we don't find out they they hid it in the <laughs> they hide it in the um, their house's actual water supply. So like after the home guard leaves and like oh I guess he doesn't have any whiskey. The guy like takes a glass out and uh, gets a bit from his like faucet and then like does a shot. <laughs> uh, there's there's lots of uh, funny little stuff like that. It's a it's a it's a delightful movie and that's uh, that's where I'm ending for this. You got one more? Yeah, I do. Uh, so Jen has been working her way through the MCU uh, with her friend uh, Melanie, and she's uh, getting towards the end here. Um, and uh, for the most part, I don't watch the movies with her. I did watch Doctor Strange with her. Uh, and then I watched Infinity War, but I didn't even want to talk about it because I've already talked about it enough on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did just watch Ant-Man and the Wasp, which uh, I saw and reviewed when it first came out. And I think as- you reviewed it for more than one lesson. Oh, right? yes, yes, I did. Um, yeah. And as you know, I, I've not really enjoyed the Ant-Man movies, um, but in watching... What are the things you and I don't see eye to eye on? Well, it's uh, the eyes are starting to line up a little bit okay. uh, <laughs> in watching this one again. Because something that I, that I think I have come to realize is that uh, for me, like the Marvel movies, like if, if I'm not invested in the character, then I tend to be frustrated by the movie and... I will sometimes write the whole movie off. Maybe not the whole movie, but like most of it. And in watching this, I think for me, I've, I've determined that, uh, I just, I think Paul Rudd is a very talented actor and I think they definitely have a, uh, better understanding of how to write the character in this film, but I still, he just, I don't, I don't, by him. I don't think his performance is really that great. I think he, as an actor, he has a very specific 
range. Uh, and when he's within it, he's great. And yes, the character is meant to be kind of funny. It's in the more sincere moments that I have a hard time believing him. Uh, and so I think that is a, a big problem for me. But as far as the action, it's great. Like I, I really like Peyton Reed is such a capable director of really fun, creative action. Um, and that's what these movies at this point with the MCU, the movies that I respond to are the ones that surprise me. There's so little that's surprising about the MCU, but like when you get to Dr. Strange, the action there, there's a, an interesting twist to it. And here with the constantly, whether it be a car chase or, you know, a, a fist fight, the constantly changing sizes. And in this case, the, a character who can phase through other, through physical objects, um, it really, uh, it really kept my attention and I, and I liked it a lot and I still really love Michael Pena, of course. Um, but, uh, for the most part, I think the film is, uh, I I liked it more this time, but I think for me, the issue really is just the character of Ant-Man himself. I I don't know what it is. I, and I'm, I'm reluctant to blame it fully on Paul Rudd. It could also be the writing, but I think, for whatever reason, I just think that character has never come in, has never solidified for me. Uh, and so I have a hard time really connecting with the larger film. So I liked it more this time. I can appreciate what Peyton Reed is doing, but I think it's just the character for me that isn't working. 